on occasion, not very often, but on occasion, someone will ask me in the lobby or bump into me somewhere and they'll ask me, of all the sermons you've ever preached, which is your favorite? Doesn't happen a lot, but it happens. And whenever I get that question, what, what's the favorite sermon you've preached? There is always a very, very short list of sermons that come immediately to mind. I don't have to think about it. They are ever present there. Very short list. See, because uh, you may not know this, but the sermons I get to preach here in this space, they are not mine. They have been given to me so that I might uh, be a vessel through which he would give them to you, right? So I am a recipient of those sermons just as you are. I just receive them in a different format than you do, okay? And so really in many ways, the sermons I get to preach are sermons that also every single time speak to me as I hope God speaks to you. And a few of them over the decades now that I've been able to spend time here, a few of them have lingered with me. They never leave. They're always with me because uh, they seem to be necessary in my dailiness. So it's truths that occurred at some point that now I hold on to because I need them every day. On that very short list of sermons, very, very short list, uh, the one that comes to mind the second someone says that is the story of Peter, particularly the story of Peter when he went into the courtyard uh, during the arrest of Jesus and he denied Christ there. That particular story, when I got to preach that story, it did things in me that I have never forgotten and that I use every day of my life. See, that story was very unique because Peter, in his personality, as you know, was, was a, a very loyal, a very dramatic follower of Jesus. And uh, at the very last dinner that they had before the crucifixion, uh, Jesus was talking to Peter and the others about his arrest and about what was going to occur the next day, actually. And Peter said, as I expect him to do, nonetheless, he said, oh, no, 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 no. If they come for you, they come through me. And if you die, I die. That's how it's going to roll. Because Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't go. And Peter said, you watch. And Jesus said, Pete, listen, I appreciate your heart. You're super cool. But tomorrow, it's not going to go down like that. You are going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. And I know exactly what Peter thought, because I've had those thoughts before when people tell me I can't do something. Peter thought to himself, I'll show you. Early, early in the morning when Jesus was arrested, John and Peter were the only two disciples that went with Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest where the trial was taking place. John went because his family was very connected and they knew the high priest, so he was with Jesus on the stage during the accusations and nobody was going to hurt John because he was too well connected. Peter was not that well connected. So Peter had to sneak into the courtyard among the hostile crowd that wanted blood. And so if there were hoodies back then, Pete would have been wearing his hoodie. He went into the courtyard and he was standing there waiting, probably in heart, waiting for some moment where he would notice Jesus make a certain move and he'd be ready to jump on board. He didn't expect this. Hey, aren't you the guy that was with Jesus, he didn't expect that. See, and in that moment, uh, in the courtyard, in the middle of the mission, 
alone with none of his brothers around him and Jesus on a stage at a distance, he did what anyone would do in that moment, full of anxiety and fear. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then someone else asked him again. He said, look, man, you got the wrong guy. And then the third person asked him, he was like, I don't know him. And the rooster crowed. Until I, until I talk to Peter face to face, which I will, I will not know the pain of that moment. Everything he knew of himself was gone. And the Bible says he looked at Jesus and he saw the eyes of Christ. Jesus turned and looked at him. And I've always experienced that story as this moment of devastation for Peter and Jesus' disappointment, but later fixing it, but there's no disappointment there in Jesus' eyes. I know that now. Because there's no reason for Jesus to tell him the night before if Jesus was gonna be disappointed in him. All Jesus was doing there is to tell Pete, I already told you this was gonna happen. Don't fret, don't go nuts. We got this, brother. In that moment, I knew that Jesus was okay with my weakness that Jesus anticipated my weakness when I was on mission for him. And I'll tell you, I've needed that sermon every day for the last four years because I have never felt as weak as I have in the last four years. We had the incredible privilege four years ago to engage in the collision of what is my family. And it has been beautiful and it has been brutal. And I've stood in places where I could never have imagined the thoughts and feelings in my heart. I have stared into weaker places in me than I knew was humanly possible to have. Things I equated to evil people. I have stood in moments in front of a child, biological or adopted sometimes, and when compassion and love should have stirred in me, frustration and hatred was all I could find. I have wondered how a human can feel and think the things I feel and think toward their very own kids. In moments, I have stood weak and lost. See, like you, and maybe you didn't, maybe you were way ahead of me, but like you, I used to think that it worked this way in life. We would go onto the battlefield on behalf of God, and there would be a Goliath, yeah, a big giant obstacle. And we would go in afraid and little. And then God would say, do not be afraid for I am with you. And we would go, okay. And then he'd give us five little stones. We can call them things, prayer and devotion. And I've heard lots of sermons. The five stones all usually have names, okay? I thought they were just stones, but whatever. So we'll have our five little stones and then Goliath will come at us and he'll charge with his big sword, the great obstacles of our life. And in the moment where we're most weak, God will make us strong. And we will swing our little thing and phew, it'll hit Goliath and he'll die and we'll celebrate. Because when we are weak, what does he do? He makes us strong. You know what I've found? That is not how it rolls. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. That's the thing about God. He doesn't have a formula that we can play into. Sometimes he makes us strong when we are weak. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we are just weak. Just scared. And we run from the field of battle. Or, even better, Goliath pummels us and we feel dead. 
Paul, is, this is who we've been traveling with, has been writing to the church in Corinth. He's been writing to them because there's been some significant relational turmoil, uh, and he's trying to right that turmoil because he's going to go visit them soon, and he wants to make things right and set right expectations before he comes so that the visit doesn't go badly. The primary reason that there's been such turmoil in relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth is because some guys came up from Jerusalem and came to Corinth, which was a wealthy city with a wealthy church that was now growing because Paul had poured into them, planted them, discipled them, prepared them. And these guys brought a resume that they believed exceeded Paul's resume so that they could undermine Paul's leadership and Paul's authenticity and they could take over the ministry that was Paul's so that they could extract from the people a solid, sustainable, ongoing ministry and that they could be taken care of and they could lead this great church so that they would be known as the people leading the church in Corinth. This is how we roll even in our society. I want to find the most successful things. I want to get them. I want to lead them so everybody will know how awesome I am and I want to be able to have the stability of extracting what I need. In order to do this, this group of people that came up from Jerusalem presented their resume. They presented their commendations, and their commendations usually were in the arena of their, their authenticity in their history, that they were of Jewish blood, that they were the chosen people of God, carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. Because remember, during this time, God had set it up that way, that the Jews, being God's chosen people at the time, carried the gospel to the Gentiles who then were grafted in to be part of the entire story. And so you'd come and say, look, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm part of that chosen group and I'm bringing the gospel to you. So I'm a follower of Jesus. Then on that resume, you would usually present how incredibly hard you work for Jesus, right? Because isn't that how we measure how spiritual we are by the labors of our work for Christ, right? And so look, my labors are greater than other people's labors. My commitment to Jesus is demonstrated by how hard I work for him right? And then after I've done that, here's my de denominational background, here's my education, here's who I belong to, and look, I've done lots of work for Jesus, big things, and he seems to have blessed my work, so he must be with me. And then we close it out with our intimate relationship with God, our spiritual experiences, the way God shows us things that he might not show other people. And so clearly, we are blessed of God, so we should be able to lead you. That's how you presented a resume. Paul never did that, you understand? Paul never went through those sequence of things. He showed up in Corinth, he preached the gospel, he discipled the guys, that's it. So, as he's writing the letter of 2 Corinthians, he's covered all of the beautiful gospel ground, right? I mean, beautiful letter. God's grace to us, God's grace through us, our grace to others in response to God's grace to us. The new covenant through Jesus that sets our souls free and gives us great hope for the present and the beautiful hope of the future we have because of the new covenant, our future redeemed so that we have nothing to fear on this planet and this beautiful life we live in a, in a God who wins already and then the incredible revelation that in the view of this gospel that we have been recipients of, we are participants in the gospel as ambassadors of Christ, reconcilers of mankind to God. And we go into the darkness and we fight on behalf of Christ because we are empowered to be his ambassadors. And then after Paul lays all of this out in extraordinary beauty, he goes, now in view of that, there are a couple things we need to just get straight. Number one, 
your generosity and promises and commitments, you ought to stick to them. He covered that ground and he demonstrated the beauty of generosity. And then he has now been covering in the most recent part of the letter, the dynamic of this insanity that the Corinthians have with this group of pretense leaders that they have bought into hook, line, and sinker because they had a cool resume, but they have abandoned the gospel truths for that resume. And Paul is disappointed. And so he's super sarcastic. We know that. He's writing sarcastically. God gives him that space because God knows how he feels. And he's trying to get some things sorted out. Now, in what he's about to do, what we're going to discover together, I want you to hear me now. I have had the privilege of discovering truths about our weakness that elevates that story of Peter to a level I had never imagined possible, that takes it to a place where I, in some ways, am so excited about weakness in a way I never was because of what Paul's about to write. And he's doing it while he's trying to correct a few things in the church in Corinth. And as we discover this together in this space, I pray that it will transform you and your heart as it is transforming me and mine. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's go exploring what God has for us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be in verse 16, and here's how it begins in verse 16. I repeat, Paul says, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Now, why does Paul say, I repeat? Because in 11.1, remember, chapter 11, verse 1, he writes, I wish you would bear with me a little, uh, it, with me in a little foolishness, do bear with me. So Paul started 11 here basically saying, listen, I'm about to act like a fool, boasting in things I ought not to because it is necessary for you. And he's repeating that now because he's about to get super boastful and he's basically saying, listen, bear with me as I do the very thing I would not have you do. Okay, now he says it this way. Look at, look at the next verse, eleven seventeen. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. What does Paul mean by that? This is scripture. So he's saying this is not the way the Lord would, would ever do. Here's what he's saying. He's giving the, the church in Corinth and us a clue and saying, listen, what I'm about to do is not the way you ought to do it. You with me? So don't walk away from this and go, I get, I get it. When we want to present our spirituality to each other, this is how we do it. We, we go through our awesome resume and accommodations, then our great works for the Lord, and then our spiritual experiences. We bring it to the table. We compare notes and we go, oh, you, you, you are awesome. I got work to do, right? He's saying, look, that is not the way the Lord would have it. But I'm about to have to do it as a fool so bear with me. Now, why is he doing it as a fool? If he knows this is foolish, why would he do it? Watch, he, he says it. Look here. Since many boast according to the flesh, he says, I too will boast. Why? For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. 
For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. It's pure sarcasm, but he's also explaining why he's about to act like a fool and boast about things he would never usually boast about. He says this, I'm about to boast foolishly before you in a way that the Lord would not have us do, and I'm doing it because it seems the only way to get through to you in your foolishness is to behave foolishly so that you would compare notes and go, oh, Paul is cooler than these other guys. We should listen to him, and then I can tell you the truth. Because you are so wise and you listen to these fools and I wasn't foolish enough to behave like them. You see what he just said? He's basically saying this, I hate that you're making me do what I'm about to do, but I'm going to do it because it is the only way to get through to your childlike minds. So I'm going to be like them for a brief moment so you can come awake and we can get back to truth. You with me? Now watch. Oh, he's mad that they're making him do this. Watch. <clears throat> but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, oh my gosh, I'm speaking like a fool. You see what he's going to do? You're going to see this throughout this little, this little section of scripture. He's going to say something. Okay, okay. I'm going to boast like that. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're making me do this. I can't believe it. I'm speaking like a fool here. Just keep that in mind. Because Paul does not want us or the Corinthians to think for a second that this kind of boasting is in any way helpful in the kingdom. Because it is not. But he is saying, oh my gosh, here I go. Here I go. You you made me do this. I'm going to do this. And then we're going to get back to what we need to get back to. Watch, watch. I am speaking as a fool, he says. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Now it seems like he's repeating himself three times. Are they Hebrews? Are they Israelites? Are they offspring of Abraham? Because those three things seem to be the same thing. A Hebrew, an Israelite, and an offspring of Abraham. Same deal. But they each have a very unique descriptor for who the people of God were during this time. So the Hebrew part, are they Hebrews? This was tying back to the accommodation, uh, the, the accommodation letters that they would have gotten to say that these guys can be apostles because they are of the bloodline of the people of God. They are Hebrews. They are Jewish people by blood. So there is no mixed blood there. And it was, remember, that the gospel would come through the Jewish people to the Gentiles. So the authority of the apostleship was brought to the table this way. I am indeed a purebred Jewish person, right? It's essentially what that was. So he goes, are they, are they bloodline Jewish? So am I. So am I, I can bring that to the table. Then he says, are they Israelites? You would use the word Israelites, not when you were talking about bloodline, as much as you were talking about the reality that you belonged to the chosen people of God. Remember, people were grafted in sometimes uh, throughout the Old Testament into the story. And so what he's saying is this, Hebrew is a bloodline thing and ties to the way you would have been educated. So that's why Paul will later on say, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. So in other words, I, I am of the part of the Hebrew that I would have learned the Bible well. I've got all the pedigree. There's the pedigree, okay? Then Israelite is, I am not only Hebrew, but I'm part of the chosen people of God. I belong to God, and it is the chosen people of God that are carrying the gospel to the world. 
So I've got that part. And then he says, are they, are they children of Abraham? So am I. The children of Abraham reference in this context would have referenced to the larger covenant that wasn't just about the Old Testament chosen people, but about those who, as the children of Abraham, would be grafted into the new covenant. So he's saying this, I am, I am pedigree by blood Hebrew, Jewish. I am a part of the chosen people and I'm a part of the new covenant. So on any category that these guys would bring their commendation letters to you, I got them. I got them. Same deal. Now he's going to say this. Watch this. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Oh, he did it. He didn't just compare notes now. He went. They follow Jesus? I follow him better. I do. I can prove it. Now, I love the next line because this is Paul. You catch his little heart here. Look at this. This is so awesome. Look at this. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. I love it. It's written right there. You can read it. He's literally, he just, he, the words came out of his mouth. I'm a better Christ follower than they are. And he goes, oh my gosh, I'm talking like a madman. What he's trying to tell us is never do this. Never, this is ridiculous. We, we don't stand around with each other and go, I follow Jesus better than you. That's what mad people do. And he's talking like a madman, okay? But, but it's necessary for him to get through to these fools that are listening to madmen. Watch this. Now he's gonna unpack for them why he's a better follower of Jesus in the way that someone who's a madman would. In other words, here's my great works toward the gospel. I've done more for Jesus than they have. This is how we in our culture still compare notes, don't we? What have you done for Jesus? I've done more than you. This is foolishness. But Paul's doing it because they've done it. Look at this. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. What is the 40 lashes less one? In the Jewish context, when you were a blasphemer, in other words, you brought truths that were not part of the Jewish understanding, then you would, you would get of the highest punishment. And the highest punishment you could give someone before stoning them to death was to, to, to do 40 lashes minus one. I don't have time to explain why that all happened, but there's reason for that. So here's the deal. Here's what Paul is saying. I preached the gospel to the Jewish people. It didn't go well. They lashed me. I preached the gospel to them again. Didn't go well. They lashed me. Five times that happened. What's Paul saying? I never gave up on preaching the gospel to the Jewish people despite the fact that in the Jewish context I was lashed time and time and time. You see, he's proving a point. I never gave up. I never bailed. I never ran. I faced. I stood my ground for the sake of Christ. And so when I could have and should have run, I did not. I'm a better follower of Jesus than they are. Now look, the very next thing he says is this. Not only did I receive the 40 lashes less one, three times I was beaten with rods. Why would he say that? Because oddly enough, that's a Gentile context. The Jewish context was the 40 lashes minus one. They wouldn't beat you with rods. They would do that very specific by the law, by the book reality. The Gentiles didn't have by the book. So they just grab rods and beat you right? So he goes, look, when I preached the gospel to the Jews, I got the punishment time and time again. Did I ever bail? No, I did not. When I preached the gospel to the Gentiles, you know what they did? They embraced me. No, they didn't. They beat me with rods three times. In fact, did I ever give up preaching? Now he's going to take it to a whole new new level. He's actually going to say in the Gentile context, not only did they beat me with rods, one time I was even stoned. Remember in Galatia, when he was in Galatia, we actually covered this. 
where they stoned him and left him for dead outside of Lycia? Look at this, look at this, this is so crazy. So he says, one time uh, I was even stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. So circumstances didn't go well. Did he bail? No. On frequent journeys, in dangers, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposed. I am a better Christian than they are. <laughs> Bring that one to the table. Who of you have done that? Oh, but wait, he's not done. That's just the start. Take a look. You exhausted yet? Don't be. It gets worse. Look at this. And apart from other things that I won't even bother mentioning, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Here's what Paul's saying. Every day my heart is anxious for you, Corinthians, for the Philippians, for the Thessalonians, for the Bereans, for every church I've planted. I feel heavy when the churches, I get word that they are weak. Do I not feel weak for you? Do I not empathize with you? When I find out you were made to fall by false teachers, do I not feel anger? Am I not indignant? Do I not want to run in and crush them so that you would be saved? So not only am I traveling around with all these insane circumstances and not giving up, not losing ground, not being weak, but I am anxious for you every day. And that weight lingers with me all the time. Are they Christ followers? I'm a better one. Speaking like a madman. And now Paul changes his tone just for a moment to remind us of the beauty of the gospel. Watch this. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This is absolutely anti-cultural to them and to us. If I must boast, I'd much rather boast in what my weaknesses are. Watch this, watch this. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, <laughs> the governor under the king was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, <laughs> but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. Isn't that the oddest story? If I have to boast, I'd rather boast in my weakness. So, so after I came to Jesus, I was in Damascus. I was full of the spirit. I just experienced miracles. Jesus had just talked to me on the road that my blindness was gone. And I found out that the governor of Damascus was trying to seize me. So you know what I did? I boldly walked into town like I always do and preached the gospel. No, 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 no. I asked them to lower me out of a basket on a side window and I ran for my life. It's right there. See what he just did? He said, if, if I have to tell you a story of my life, Instead of telling you the stories of the shipwrecks and the boldness and the lashes that I endured and still stayed strong, I'd rather just tell you that in the early parts of my ministry, when I should have been bold, I was scared to death and I ran away. God is telling the tr God would tell you the truth. That's what I want to do. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting now. Do you see what Paul just did? <laughs> boasting like a madman. 
If I could and you weren't fools, I would rather boast in my weakness. Now, back to madman. I must go on boasting because we're not done yet. <clears throat> we've talked pedigree. We've talked education. We've talked labor, the works we do. Let's talk spiritual experiences now. Let's talk revelation. Let's talk about God speaking to me because apparently if God speaks to you in big things, then you are blessed of God. And that's what you guys are buying into. Watch this. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. <clears throat> I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. So two beautiful things. One, Paul is now separating himself into a third person. Did you see that? I once knew a man. God caught him up into heaven and uh, showed him some things. Now, Paul's going to show us in a minute that he's that guy, but he's separating this out because he literally wants to start demonstrating to us, let us not boast in ourselves, but let us boast in what God is doing in and around us, never in ourselves. The other thing that's super interesting about this is what just caught your attention. You see, we're talking about this beautiful sermon on weakness, and all you're interested in is what is the third heaven? I know it. I know how our brains work. You guys are all going, is he going to explain the third heaven? Because that's super confusing. It's an irrelevant piece of the entire deal, but since it's bothering you, let me explain. <laughs> it's not a theological term. It's not something about heaven where Paul gets to go, and if you're as good as Paul, then you get to go there too, but the rest of us are in heaven one or two. That's not how it works. <laughs> in the Jewish context, it was very simple. You'll see it in the Psalms all the time. They will say, let us look up to the heavens, right? What, what is he talking about there? Well, it depends. See, heaven in the Jewish context, could mean any one of three things. It could mean the sky, literally like our sky, birds, and clouds. Oh my gosh, is the sunset not beautiful in the heavens today, right? Or you could say, God has stretched his hand out across the heavens like a tent. What are you talking about then? Are you talking about the sky? No, you're talking about the stars and the universe, that which is visible to us that we know is there, and it is beyond the sky, it is higher than the sky. And then you could also say God is in heaven, the place of paradise where God resides, a dimension we do not yet understand, but someday will because we'll leave this planet of death. So when you wanted to clarify what you were talking about, when, for example, you would say, I was caught up into the heavens, you would say, uh, Jesus went up into the first heaven. What is that? Uh, the clouds. Right? There he is. Oh, oh, he's flying. Not Superman, it's Jesus. So th that's just right here. Or you could say the second heaven, which would be beyond the clouds into what is known to us, the stars. Or you could say the third heaven, which is the place where God resides. You with me? So all third heaven simply means is the actual heaven we talk about. Okay? Not the sky. Paul did not get caught up into the clouds and have a chat with Jesus. Paul did not land on Mars and go, this is super cool. They'll get here someday, but they're still trying um, and talk with Jesus there. Paul actually went to heaven and was with God. Third heaven, there it is, simple. Now you can rest at peace. Okay, watch this. Whether in body or out of body, I do not know, God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in body or out of body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Isn't that amazing? Look what Paul just did. 
He elevated his resume beyond anybody else's ability. He didn't say this. Look, God showed me things that I'm now telling you. And this is what he said. Are those super apostles? God shows them things and they come tell you those things and you're super impressed, aren't you? Oh, God showed me this. I got to show you. Look what God shows me. The stuff God showed me, I can't even tell you. It's so cool. (laughs) It's so awesome that I'm not even allowed to utter them to you. I'm the only one that knows them and I know them because I need to know them and you don't need to know them because you can't know them. So if you want to go toe to toe on resume, Whatever revelation they say they've had that they can unpack for you, the revelations I've had, I'm not even allowed to unpack for you. I'm like CIA, Christian. <laughs> you see what he just did? He elevated his spiritual experience above theirs. Now, is he, is he speaking like a madman? Yes, he is. Okay? And so he's gone third person on this, and then he says this. Look at this. I love this. I will boast on, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Isn't that funny how he just did that? You see what Paul just did? It it, it was me. The guy in the heavens, it was me. And on behalf of that man, I will boast for your sake. But if I'm going to be boasting about myself, I do not want to boast as that man. Because that experience was not for you. It wasn't even for me. It was for the glory of God. So I will not boast in it. But I knew a man and he did it just in case you need a resume to compare. So he says, I will boast not on behalf of that man, but if I boast on behalf of myself, I will boast in my weaknesses. Look at verse six. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. That's all Paul wants. So, Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. That's what he told us it was him. Did you see that? He just did it. Just in case we missed it, he goes, you know those revelations I talked about? Because of the exceeding greatness of those revelations that I had, God did something that began to bring me to a place where I would not become conceited. Okay, watch what he did. Watch. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now you guys are all distracted again, aren't you? Doesn't matter what cool message this is, what's the thorn? You want to know. All right, fair enough. Allow me to expound. I have no idea. I don't know what the thorn is, nor do you. And if anybody tells you they know what the thorn is, allow me to tell you that they don't know what they're talking about because God didn't tell us because it's not important. Here is what is important, that whatever this thorn was, it affected Paul's life dramatically. It made him feel weak. It made him feel weak. And Paul was a strong man. He didn't like weakness. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In in the Pharisaical world, you presented strength. You played to your strengths. You got rid of weakness. Does that sound familiar? But Paul says, he made me weak and I begged him to take it. See, I don't know what the thorn was. We know this. It was probably, if it was something physiological or physical, it was probably something like, for example, 
really bad migraines that he couldn't get rid of. Some of you have lived there, right? You beg God, just take them away because when, when they hit, everything I do stops. I, I feel like I'm gonna throw up, my eyes go blank and I have to lay down for hours and I can't be productive. Or maybe it was something more in the emotional category with chemical realities like depression. If you've ever struggled with depression, you know you don't pick that, right? You don't just wake up one day and say, today I'm gonna be moody. It's not how it works. It comes and it swallows you up and you don't know what to do and you know things that are true but they don't matter anymore and then you're lost in that and that day goes away, that week goes away. Don't you beg God to take that away? Doesn't that stop you in your tracks? Don't you feel weak? Yeah, we don't talk about that stuff much because it makes us weak. Maybe it was actually literally demonic activity. It could have been. That literally, because of Paul's world that he lived in, there was a demonic presence that was hounding him like Luther described in his journey as well. And Paul's like, I, I can't. It's too discouraging. It's too much. I sleep at night and it's there. Take it away. It makes me feel small and weak. Take it away. Or maybe it was the opposition he faced every day of his little life. Everywhere he went, he faced opposition. Not the kind we face. Big, hard, difficult opposition. And he begged God to make him strong. He begged God to take it away. You know what God said? If you have a Bible that has red letters, you're about to read red letters. You know what that means? That means Jesus said this directly to Paul. That's a big deal. Okay, watch this. He begged God to take it away. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Hmm. Read that carefully because we read what we want to hear. See, like you, I probably for most of my life assumed that what this verse meant was when I am weak, God will be made perfect and show himself strong by making me Strong. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that. It says, in my weakness, God's power will be made perfect. Why? Because his grace will be sufficient to whom? To me. This entire book is about grace. God's extraordinary grace to us, God's extraordinary grace through us, our grace given in response to God's extraordinary grace for us. And now he says this, when you are weak and you don't have anything left and you beg me to make you strong, you must understand that often on this planet, for you to experience grace in its fullness, it must be found in your weakness. If I make you strong, you will not know my grace the way you ought. And then you will not affect my grace to others the way you ought. For my power is made perfect, not in me making you strong or in you being strong, but in you being weak. I must stand over my child and feel things I did not think possible of myself 
and not wait for God to take them away, but to know that God is enough there for me. In my weakness. Now Paul concludes, watch this, just to nail this down. Look what he says. This is extraordinary. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. See, he's not saying, I will show the world that in my weakness he has made me strong. He will say, no, I will boast in the actual weaknesses themselves. Look at me. I am weak today. I will boast in them. Watch this. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See what Paul just said? It's not a formula. He didn't say, if you boast in your weakness, he will take it away. If you boast in your weakness, he will make you strong. He said this, when you stand squarely in your weakness with no strength, there and there alone, will Christ be a place you will have to rest on because you will have nothing else. We are fools, us humans, that if we find even the bit of strength, we gravitate to it and rest on it. And there are times in life where Jesus is so gracious to us that he says, I will give you no strength to rest on so that you might rest only on me. Our weakness is perhaps in the kingdom of God's view one of our greatest gifts that he does not remove our weakness from us. Sometimes he will make us strong when we are weak. It happens. But sometimes he will not. And when he doesn't, he has not forgotten you or me. He has not abandoned you or me. He is gracious to you and me. Look at how Paul closes this out. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do not read that verse wrongly. It did not say, for when I am weak, he will make me strong. It did not say that. It said, for when I am weak, in that weakness, I am stronger than I am anywhere else. Because in that weakness, it is the only place where the grace of God must be sufficient. When I was younger, as a teenager, I watched a movie called The Mission. I haven't watched it probably in 20 years. I'm going to go watch it again. I was reminded literally this weekend of it as I was grappling with my weakness and God's grace in it. And and the, the movie begins this way. It's, it's super crazy. It's about this missionary that goes into South America into the Amazon jungle to go and preach the gospel to a tribe out there. And so the beginning of the movie, the first five minutes, he goes through like the jungle like you would imagine, like fighting tigers and you know, almost dying. And, and then he climbs this waterfall literally without ropes. Like, and you're like, he's gonna die! And he fearlessly climbs up the waterfall and, and grapples up the top. And then he searches through the jungle and he finds the tribe that he was looking for that God called him to preach to. And he, he goes to them and before he can even preach the gospel to them, they time to a cross and send him right back over the waterfall and he dies. Never even preached the gospel to them. Just died. And the first time I watched that scene, I thought to myself, what a terrible thing. 
I mean, imagine that. Your entire life mission. You pour yourself in 100%. You don't even get to preach the gospel. They just kill you. And you're like, oh, well. And then it dawned on me. If the grace of God is sufficient for the circumstance or mission to which we engage, then is it not also true that the places in which we will experience the greatest grace of God is when we're tied to a cross with our dreams behind us, not before us, over a waterfall, dying without even completing the mission that we thought was ours. Huh. And so I said to God, because I was a stupid teenager, I want that story. I want to know your grace that way. I want to die like that. I want you to tie me to a cross, send me over a waterfall without my dreams being realized so that all I would know is what your grace would be like when everything is lost. What an idiot I was as a teenager. <laughs> because now I sit here. In the last four years, I have stared into weakness I never imagined possible on me. As recently as yesterday. So don't think this is some past reality for me. It is a here and now. And God whispers, Renaud, I will not take your weakness from you. For in your weakness, you will know me in ways you cannot in any other space. Be content in your weakness. Do not run from it. Do not remove it. Trust me with it. Do not wait for me to make you strong. For when you are weak, then you are strong. And when you are weak, then I will make myself strong for you. But I might not actually make you strong. There is the grace of God and our freedom. So that we do not have to be afraid when God calls us into stories bigger than we ought to take on. Stories like Peter in the courtyard where he never belonged and did not have the strength to tolerate, could not handle, and broke down at the very moment he should have raised, raised up. And yet in that, Peter knew Jesus more than perhaps at any other time in his life. Because on the beach later, Peter and Jesus would encounter each other and the greatest story of Peter's life would emerge as Jesus restores him from what he perceived as brokenness. And Peter would write these words later on in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I close with this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In other words, you feel small and weak so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter writes and says, my friends, do not wallow in the fears of your weakness. For though for a time you will feel weak, weakness will show your faith for what it really is. And Jesus 
will show himself perfect for he was the one that said in Hebrews 12, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Be weak, my friends, for in weakness we are strong and we will know God in ways we otherwise cannot. Let us pray. God, in a culture that demands us to play to our strengths, that demands that we create resumes that eliminates our weaknesses or disguises them as strengths, in a culture where we have to come to each other regularly in the Christian circles and speak of the fears in us but always add the little paragraphs or the little parentheses that say, but God is good, but I am blessed, but it's all fine. Where we are so afraid of our weaknesses, so afraid that they make us unspiritual, that they make us people that are not blessed. Because if you blessed us, then we would never be weak. In a culture that demands of us to try to eliminate weakness, and beg you to take it away. Would you scream at us every day? Boast in your weakness. Be at peace with your weakness. For only in your weakness will I be all sufficient to you. Take me to places, God where I will be weaker still, that I might know you more. Love you, Jesus.